Good morning. If you'd like to turn to Acts 17, we're going to continue in the book of Acts. We've been going through this over the past few months. We're looking at the early church. So Jesus came to the earth, died, rose again, and inaugurates this new collection of people, the church. And they are sent on a mission by the Holy Spirit, equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. There are particular individuals that God separates out and says, go. Go to these places. And Paul and his companions are these group of people. And last week, if you were here, we heard about them going to Berea, where the believers tested what they said against the Word of God. But there was a backlash. There was persecution. They were threatened. And so Paul has been separated from his companions. And we find ourselves in the story where Paul is alone in Athens. And we're going to join this. We're going to read it. And we're going to see what God has to say for us today. We're going to read from verse 16. So Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, just a little point. This, the next bit is what happens while Paul is waiting for his companions to join him. That's just a side note. This is the Paul the Apostle. He's just waiting for his friends to join him. And while he's waiting, what do you do while you're waiting? Bit of Duolingo, check with social media, you know, those sort of things. Maybe, you know, read the newspaper, give a friend a call. This is what Paul, Paul does while he's waiting. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was um, preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arab... Areopagus, I've been practicing that one, Areopagus, where they said that to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, 
Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Should we pray? Lord, I thank you for your word. We thank you for this story that you're laying before us today. This truly happened in Athens over 2,000 years ago. A man called Paul reasoned with Greeks, and you did amazing things. Lord, help us learn what you'd have us learn today. Help us meet with you through this text. Help us hear you speak specifically to our hearts and change our lives today, we pray. Amen. What do you see when you look around Sheffield? What do you see when you look around your life, when you look at your friends that don't know Jesus? What's your reaction? Perhaps on a day-by-day basis, we can just go, it's all right, it's okay, it's life, isn't it? But if we stop and look carefully at what people's hearts are set on, what they're desiring, what they're worshipping, perhaps we can get into a similar place to Paul here. He looks around Athens, and it's observable. It's easy to see there are idols everywhere. And his reaction is distress. It's a deep emotional reaction. He is distressed by what he sees. And if we begin to look clearly amongst our society, there is something of that reaction that we should begin to see in ourselves. Idolatry is prevalent. People aren't worshipping the true and living God. They're giving their hearts and their passions and their lives to other things. That is idolatry. And something needs to happen in us that helps us reach out, which is this, a level of emotional distress at the state of our society. Paul doesn't move to despair, but he is distressed. My first encouragement, which wasn't in the notes, but let's go for it anyway. My first encouragement is this. Let's allow ourselves to be distressed by the state of our friends, our family, our society, in order that we are motivated to do something about it. My set points are, are actually start with R's. That didn't have an R, so it's not, you don't have to put that one down. It's, not, it's a free, free gift. We're going to look through this text today and see that the way Paul uses that distress is with R's. I'll give you them now. He reasons, he relates, he reveals, and then he calls people to repentance. Reason, relates, he reveals, and calls people to repentance. And we're going to go through these things relatively quickly. 
And then we're going to particularly dwell on repentance. Verse 17. Paul was distressed. He saw the city was full of idols. So what does he do? He reasons in the synagogue. And we read later on, he reasons in the marketplace as well, day by day. He doesn't cast out demons, as far as we know. There are no healings or miraculous signs. No one has a vision. No one has a dream where God comes and meets with them. All those things are legitimate and good and godly. And we've read about many other things already happening. In fact, Paul has done some of those things already. He knows that it's part of the gospel. Part of preaching the good news is to see those things happen. But in Athens, it seems that he has a particular strategy. And it begins with this. It begins with reasoning. And if we were to identify a city in Acts that is most closely located or related to ours, then perhaps Athens might be that. And yes, we're called to to see demons cast out and to see the sick healed. But actually, the majority of of people's journeys towards Christ will always include something of reasoning, something of impartation of information. Now, the word reason here, it has a broader sense. It means a conversation with. It means hearing as well as speaking. It means preaching, but it means arguing and it means disputing. We know the famous words of Jesus, the truth will set you free. How will someone hear the truth? Through communication and reasoning and conversation and preaching and disputing. It's the main way we move from one position to another. Someone might have a miraculous, wonderful experience, and that might help them move across. Someone might have a vision. Someone might get healed. That might help them on their journey, but they still need to hear the truth. They still need to be reasoned with. I'm going to break some sad news to many people in the room. Approximately speaking, seven or eight days, you're going back to school. Some of you are not going to be too excited about that idea. And your parents are going to have to reason with you. They're going to have to dispute with you. They may even have to argue with you on that day, on that morning, when the alarm goes off before 8 o'clock in the morning and your parents come in and wake you up and say, it's school. It's time to go back to school. I don't want to go to school. You will say, I'm talking about kids not in this church, because obviously you, you kids are wonderfully behaved all the time, aren't you? And you respond positively to every interaction you have with your parents. It's time for school, dear. Of course, let's go. I'm ready. I'll brush my teeth straight away and eat my breakfast without a fuss. I'll get changed without you nagging me 14 times to get out the door. It's time we're going to be late. It's the first day of school. I'm reasoning with my child. I'm disputing with my child. We don't argue too much in our household, fortunately. But there may be different reactions, different situations. But I will have a conversation when there's a difficult morning. I don't want to go to school. I will reason with them. Well, education is good for you, but I don't feel like it. 
What use is maths in the real world? Well, lots of reasons, which I'll go into at another time. But you need to go to school. It's a good thing. All the homeschoolers now are going, this is brilliant. We don't listen to this. It's much easier. Get up. You ready? Let's go. What's our reason? I, if you don't go to school, daddy's going to have to go to prison. What? <laughs> well, if you don't go, you know, a lot, that might happen. And eventually, I'm using information to help them come around to the idea that it's a good thing to do. I haven't been very winsome or very helpful in my argument this morning, but normally it'd be amazing. It's seconds. Set the turnaround from I don't want to go to I'm ready to go seconds. But today, I'm not quite on form. The point I'm making is this. We're going to encounter people who don't know Jesus, don't believe in God, and we're going to have to use reason and argument and information to help them. And we need to be like Paul, don't we? We have to walk into the political and intellectual elites. We need to go to the marketplace. We need to go to the councils, the Areopagus of Sheffield. And we need to go in and say and argue intellectually and make our point and win people over, don't we? No, we don't, because we're going to use the Bible properly. And we're not called to be Paul. Hallelujah! We don't have to go to Sheffield Council and preach the gospel. That's not my call. That's not your call. Well, some people might have that call. But we've got to use this properly. What, what, are we going to, what are we called to do? Are we called to emulate Paul and do exactly what he did? No. God said to Paul, go, go, go to these places. And God had given him a particular gift to do what God had called him to do. So we're off the hook, aren't we? Yeah? Should we go home? Let's dip into 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Not the people you like. Hello. I'll calm it down a bit now. Not the people that you think you can win the argument with. Everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. This is written to every believer. We're not called to be Paul. We're not called to win massive intellectual arguments in the place where all ideas are discussed in Athens. But Peter says this, though, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Can you do that? You don't have to do it comfortably. You don't even have to do it well. But there is an instruction here, a command from the Word of God for us to be prepared to give an answer. That might require us to do a bit of thinking, a little bit of processing, a little bit of homework in order to be able to do that. 
But we also read this in Mark 13, 11. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I can glean from that that when we want to share the answer that we have for the hope, that God will help us. We don't do it in our own strength, but the Holy Spirit equips us and enables us to respond and answer those who ask questions. Okay, if you're feeling a little bit pressured by that, if that's feeling a little bit weighty, let me suggest a couple of things. Discuss it with your small group and work it out together. Take some time out with God to work it through. Come and join discipleship training in September because I've got four spaces and we will spend loads of time doing this and we will really help you be able to reach out particularly. So if you've got a Thursday morning free, if you've got a flexible working time, come and join us on a Thursday morning three times a week, three times a month, Thursday morning three times a week. We have strange ways of calculating time in discipleship training. Three Thursdays a month. And we can help you do that. There are people in here who can help you do that. Don't flounder on your own or worry about it. But ask God to help you. Ask others to help you so that you're able to give a reason for the hope that you have. And then we'll come to this in a bit. Paul, in this, this, this chapter here, gives us a model that we can use. One, for, one strategy we can use to reach people as well. And we'll come to that in a bit. I'm... Can I, can I sneak an extra R in? Just stick it in there. Extra one. Extra R. Mixed reactions. Reactions. Do you notice? Paul doesn't have a 100% record. He doesn't have a 100% record. He knows people have mixed reactions. Let me just try something out. Just prepare yourself for this. Up the blades! We had a re. Up the blades. Ooh, that's a mixed reaction. We lost power. No, we have some. If I knew that when I said up the blades, I'd get a mixed reaction because I know he's in the room. There are blade supporters. I mean, we're all muted by the sounds of it. There's no real support. I mean, he's expecting Stuart to rugby tackle me off the stage, but it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, hold him back, Jimmy. Hold him back. I knew that statement would create a mixed reactions, reactions because there's a passion for the owls and a passion for the blades. Paul knows what he's going to say is going to create a mixed reaction. Does that stop him saying what he says? No. We sometimes will not speak the truth. We sometimes will not step out because we're scared of a mixed reaction. Or alternatively, we'll only step out with think, oh, there's a strong chance of a positive reaction here, so I will step out. If we, verse 18, we can see it with Paul. <laughs> they say, what is this babbler trying to say? Are you prepared to be called a babbler? What is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. We flip over to verse 32. Some of them sneered. Are you prepared to be sneered at? But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. 
We will always get mixed reactions when we step out and share the good news about Jesus. But we must be prepared for that and realize that is part and parcel of it. We cannot just step out in a place or a situation where we think we're going to get a positive reaction. Sneaky one. Let's cut that short there. Right. Relate and reveal. Paul seems to have a particular strategy with Athens. He sees lots of idols. He's distressed by that. But then he says, this can help me share the good news about Jesus. I can use this as a platform to bring something else in. So he relates to them where they're at. So verse 22 and verse 23. He says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar to this in, with this inscription to an unknown God. I see that you are very religious, he says in verse 22. There's some God here. You're very religious. You're, you've got, you're trying to worship, but you're worshiping something that is unknown. And then he reveals, let me show you what this unknown God, who he really is. He begins to reveal something new. There's more revelation they need. And what... Oh, Matt, can we get the slide up, if that's all right? Does anyone know what this is? I'm in the way. It's a springboard used in gymnastics. My hope was that we'd have a springboard here this morning. This would have been great fun, wouldn't it? But we don't. So we're going to have a, pretend we've got a springboard, okay? So Paul uses the idols some level of good, some level of truth in society is a springboard to bring greater revelation. You see, the thing with a springboard is that it's not much fun if you just stand on it. And Here's my imaginary springboard. I'm standing on my imaginary springboard. Well, that's all right. The point of a springboard is not to do that. The point of a springboard is to do this. Have you got any... Um any uh, chalk in my hands? No. Did you not get the message about the chalk? It's unfortunate. I'll just use your hair. Right. And, and, here, vault, vault. I get onto the vault. I've done a summer, triple somersault, triple somersault, land, weird stance. That's a, thank you. Thank you. It won't surprise many of you to know that I've just pulled a muscle. I was not expecting that to be in my pecs, but it has happened. My arms don't normally go about that far. Genuinely in pain right now. Pray for me. The point is, Paul's not just bouncing around on the springboard saying, look, you are very religious. Look, you've got an unknown God. He uses it to vault, to go somewhere else, to bring revelation. He said, but let me tell you something else. Let me tell you something you don't know. Let me reveal the good news about Jesus. How does that work for us? What does that mean for us? There are things in our culture and in our society that have goodness about them, but need greater revelation. And I'm going to use the owls and the blades and sport to try and demonstrate this. We haven't got loads of time this morning because I'd love to go through about seven or eight different examples and work this through with you. But we're only going to be able to do one, really. What is good about supporting a football club? 
being passionately involved, being a season ticket holder? What can we see that is in there that we can latch onto and relate to? There's something in there about community spirit, connecting with other people. That is good. It'd be involved in something bigger. People long for that. And you see that worked out in supporting a football club. There's also something about singing together, isn't there, in a community. Let's all sing together. You won't know this one. It's Coventry. Play up Sky Blues while we sing together. We will never lose. Tottenham or Chelsea, who we never play anymore. United or anyone. They can't defeat us. Yes, they do. We'll fight to the game is run. City! 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 Just me. Just me then. That's fine. Community, communal singing. That is something that people love about football supporting. There's a level of escapism in there, isn't there? The, escaping the highs and the lows, and the, sorry, escaping the humdrum of everyday life in order to engage in the highs and the lows, depending on whether you're a Blades or an L supporter, of football life. I didn't say which way around. I didn't say respectively, did I? I didn't say respectively. You choose. There's also a level, level of hero worship. This player put on a pedestal, someone I can look up to. Someone that I can be like, someone that is so amazing, that is beyond me, that gives me something to look up to. What's the revelation we bring? What's, how do we use that as a springboard to bring something new? We talk about church community that is genuinely and sacrificially loving. We talk about a people connected together across every boundary every racial boundary, every language barrier that God wants to bring together to help support and love one another, not just on a Saturday afternoon, but in the whole of life. We recognize that life is sometimes rubbish and we do want to escape from it. We do want to remove ourselves from it, but the solution isn't just football. God's calling us to a greater life where his spirit enables us to deal with the challenges of life, but calls us to a new life in heaven. That's what that gap that we have, that desire for something more and something better, is a desire for a heavenly life with Jesus forever. And if you want to talk about heroes, if you want to talk about people to look up to, if you want to talk about heroes with integrity, let's talk about Jesus. Let's chat about him. Now, how would that actually work? How would that conversation work? It wouldn't work by just landing up and saying that straight away. Remember, this reasoning is a level of conversation and relationship. And we read in this chapter, Paul spent a few days in Athens. It wasn't cold. It wasn't just off the hoof. He thought about it. He'd related with people. He processed it. He'd gone through it with God. And so I'm not going to be able to give you the perfect answer to this, but you, we, need to look at the people God's put around us and see what are the idols? What are the situations we can relate to and bring revelation to? Maybe it's a friend who, who is a Muslim. Maybe it's someone who is just caught up on materialism and things. Maybe it's someone who's massively into gaming. Maybe it's someone who is a socialist or a communist and just given their lives to that. 
I can't go through each individual one because you know the people that you know. My encouragement is, is this. Let's take Paul's model. Do some work. Do some thinking. Do some praying. Find where we can relate and bring revelation. Right. Last point. Paul doesn't just build a bridge to their culture and their idolatry and bring revelation. He doesn't just talk about a loving God who made them and that they're his children. He does say that, and it is true. Let's go to verse 30. Halfway through. Now, he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the fact that one day Jesus will come back and he will judge everyone. And he won't judge with partial insight. He will judge with full knowledge and full insight of every single thing that we have ever done, ever thought, ever said, ever not done when we should have done. He'll come and judge. When I was eight years old, my journey of true faith really began because I sat in a church meeting, not dissimilar lists. And someone outlined these truths, that judgment was coming. Jesus was coming back. And I was aware, suddenly and painfully, of my sin, of my rebellion to God. Five minutes earlier, I thought I was all right. I'd grown up in a Christian home, lived a fairly decent life. Five minutes later, I am graphically painfully aware of my sin because someone has just painted a picture of a perfect and holy God. Someone has just raised the standard of what I needed to be in order to relate to God. Sinless. Perfect. I couldn't. I was like a, a black stained rag before God. But Jesus comes. Jesus came, as we've heard so clearly this morning already, to remove those stains, to remove the shame, to remove the sin, to take away all those things that stop us from relating to God. We're not called to just relate to people or reveal truth to people. If we only do that, we do people a disservice because people need to be called to repentance. It's not just a change of mind, but a change of heart, a change of life, a change of understanding, a change of worldview. It's not just adding something on. 
But it's realizing that the world has been constructed and means something completely different to what I thought it meant. My life means something different to what I thought it meant. I am something different to what I thought I was. I'm not, I'm not okay. I am nothing before a holy God. I bring nothing. And the question comes again, how do we do that with our friends? You see, it's actually easy for me to stand here and say, God calls us to repent. God calls you to repent, to turn your life around, to change your mind, to change your heart, to recognize he's right, you're wrong, to give your life to him. I found that easier than to sit down in a pub, have an appointment with my friend and say, nice pint, isn't it? You fancy repenting today? I'm not saying this, thing, this, this is easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But if we only relate to people's lives, if we only bring a bit more revelation and never get to repentance, you know something? We've not helped them at all. So we can relate. We can reveal. And maybe we invite we invite people to places like this where someone like me can say it to a group of people a bit more easily. But I'm, I'm, let me apologize. I'm not going to give you a perfect strategy. I'm not going to give you a perfect way of reaching out to your friends today. But we're gonna look, we've looked at Paul. We've seen that he's reasoned. He's related. He's revealed and he's called people to Repentance. And we've seen also that we can't just sit here or sit in our lives and expect God to move. There is a chance for us to do work behind the scenes, to not expect the thing to happen just because it happens, because God gives us an opportunity, which he will do, but to expect God to move when we prepare, when we pray, when we take time to think about these things, to think about how do I give a reason for the hope that I have? How do I relate to my friend who's massively into gaming? How do I bring revelation to this person who has been a Muslim their whole life? And how can I help them come to realize that repentance is necessary to know God forever? So we finish there. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I'm aware that the need for repentance is not a one-off need. I'm aware that any of us in this room, in fact, most of us in the room, if not all of us, can easily wander away, wander away from the truth that we know, can easily get back into building a world around ourselves rather than around you. But we also recognize, God, we're in a city full of idols with people that need reasoning and revelation and that need to repent. And God, we don't feel fully equipped for that. We don't feel like we're able to do that easily. But I thank you that you bring your Holy Spirit to help us. 
And I pray now for a rise of faith as we get hold of what you're saying to us this morning. Yes, we'd feel the need to work and prepare and pray for our friends and family. We'd also be aware of a God who wants to reach our friends and family through us. Lord, finally, I want to pray for people in the room this morning that don't know you. And I know there are many here in that category. I want to pray through what's been brought through the worship, which, what has been brought through the preaching. That you would change their hearts and their minds to realize that you are the one true living God. And you're the God who sent your son Jesus to die in our place to remove our sin and our shame. And Jesus is the one who's rose again, defeating sin and death, sending his Holy Spirit to us as a guarantee of a future glory in heaven with you. And I pray you bring many to know you this morning. Amen. Let's worship.